Hey everyone. I've always hated those Instagram posts captioned with the words, live your dreams, because most of my dreams are me getting chased by an invisible monster. However, this book has some concrete ideas that make sense to me, and it literally enabled today's guest to quit a day job and live all over the planet. Today's book is The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss, and today's guest is Irish comedian Dave Nyhill. And this is The Book Pile a podcast about the best of books and the worst of books. If this is your first time on the podcast, welcome, and maybe suggest checking out our back catalog of over 170 episodes on as many books. As usual, my co-host David Vance isn't here this week, but he will be returning next week uh, when we cover the graphic novel Watchmen. But also it's okay that he's not here today because I've temporarily replaced him with another Dave. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic, a father, and I also wrote a book called The 4-Hour Workweek, but it was just a memoir of the pandemic when I lost all my income and was working 45 minutes a day collecting recycling for cash. It was a short book which I also recycled for the money. If you want to see me live, I'm going to be in Southern California this week at various venues within about a 30-mile radius of San Diego. Uh, I'm going to be in Grass Valley, California, May 18th. I will probably be in Sunnyvale, California, May 30th through June 2nd. Uh, Keep checking my website to confirm that. Then I will be in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada at Rumors Comedy Club June 11th through the 15th. Go to kellenerskin.com for all of those tickets. Real quick, if today's book ends up sounding interesting to you, uh, consider buying it using the link in our episode description. That way you get a book and support the podcast. It's available in paperback, Kindle, and on Audible, which is what I use. And the narrator is really good. Fun fact, he's the same guy who also voices the book Project Hail Mary, which uh, is my favorite science fiction book of all time. Also, that Audible version is free for first-time subscribers. Uh, Dave and I also have a Patreon where we release weekly bonus episodes, among other perks. Go to patreon.com slash thebookpile, or just, you know, Google around and you'll find it eventually. Now, my thoughts on this book before we get to Dave Nyhill. Tim Ferriss writes about working smart, uh, the 80-20 principle, or 2080 principle, if you're a contrarian. He writes about outsourcing tasks that are either trivial or just straight up uh, outsourcing stuff that you're not great at. He encourages focusing on your strengths and maybe paying someone else to pick up the slack. Uh, And the sum of all of uh, these practices and many more are to minimize the work that you do while making a more than livable wage so that you can live more of a life that you want. Plus, there are constant references and even chapters on how to live affordably in other countries and either work while you live there or take weeks or months off at a time. He says towards the end of the book that his goal is always one month of dedicated work alternating with two months of living abroad to learn a new skill. Basically just going on vacation. That last part I have not done, so I can't speak from my own experience other than that time that I broke out of prison and lived for two months in the backwoods of Finland. But I am looking forward to using some of the methods that he preaches. Uh, A couple of things that I've already started applying and seeing results for are the uh, 80-20 principle 
And also the concept of the unfortunately named Parkinson's Law, which essentially states that however much time you give yourself on a task, you will likely just fill too much of that time and rarely to a greater result, sometimes even with diminishing returns, which is what I call my tax returns. I don't. It's just really late right now. So the idea is to give yourself shorter deadlines. We've all pulled all-nighters. And when you do that, there's no time for baloney when that happens. That's when you whip out the laser focus. So just force yourself to artificially apply the energy more often by shortening your own deadlines. That's his point. I recently did this with a, a script that I had five more days yet to complete it. And I was planning on using those five full days, but then I serendipitously came across this passage in the book while I was procrastinating that writing, uh, this quote, which reads, never tell yourself, I'll just get it done this weekend. Force yourself to work tight hours so that your per hour productivity doesn't fall through the floor. Get the critical few things done and get out. Time is wasted in proportion to the amount that it is available. Doesn't that last thing sound like something Dumbledore would say? Anyway, it was about 10 p.m. when I read that. So after recovering from this personal attack from Tim, I then took the next few hours to just completely finish that script. Then I revisited a few days later. I gave it a solid rewrite after having that valuable distance from it. And it became what I consider the best script that I've written yet for this certain series, which I can't disclose yet. Um, finally, uh, here's a lightning round of my other favorite quotes from this book before we get to today's guest. An expert is someone who has made all the mistakes that can be made in a very narrow field. Doing less meaningless work so that you can focus on things of greater importance is not laziness. Identify the few critical tasks that contribute most to income and schedule them with very short and clear deadlines. If you don't do this, the unimportant becomes the important. All right, and without further ado, I'd like to introduce today's guest. Among other things, he's an Irish comic and author who actually appeared on this podcast uh, one time a couple years ago when we discussed his public speaking book, Do You Talk Funny? He's a winner of The Moth, also the San Francisco International Comedy Competition, a competition that I won fifth place in just a few years prior to him. And he currently is touring with sold-out shows on at least two continents this year, possibly three. He's got over half a million Instagram followers and comedy specials with millions of views. He's also more than just a comedian. He's a world traveler. He's a bit of a daredevil. And if you stick around to the end of the episode, he tells this wild story of getting injured on a Mediterranean island with no doctor. This is Dave Nyhill. And since it's awkward for comics to be introduced with lots of fanfare like this on a podcast, I'm pre-recording all of this without him present. So now we will just abruptly cut over to the conversation that I have with him. 
just because I think it lends credibility to all these ideas that you're the, the biggest example of anyone I know who has done this, who has truly just <laughs> lived, you live where you want, you do what you want, and you have, uh, I mean, working just interesting jobs. How many countries have you lived in or vacationed at? And how many uh, languages do you speak or are are learning? Yeah, there's going to be people out there to go, he does not speak English. I haven't understood. <laughs> so don't get too fancy. I don't know if I speak any language well. I have studied seven at this point, if you include oh. English, and I'm bad at nearly all of them. But I, I worked in Spanish for a while, and I'm kind of okay in Brazilian Portuguese. And yeah, I've had a stab with French in school, did German in university, did Mandarin when I was living in China, and had a crack at a few other ones along the way as well, which are all probably fairly ropey. I've been to nearly, I think, 80 countries at this stage, and I've lived for prolonged periods in about 12. Um, but yeah, I thought I didn't travel much last year, and then I counted eleven countries, and I was like, "Oh no, I did." I did. <laughs> I I didn't leave the state of California until I was fifteen. So <laughs> yeah, but then you went to Brazil and I made think, up for lost time. Well, and you do speak too. fluent Brazilian Portuguese. You're, well, and you're being modest when so you say you don't know that you speak those. Yeah, you speak better Portuguese than I do, and I lived there for two years. <laughs> I wish. I just I fake do. it. I just fake it musically. You're great at Portuguese. But I genuinely thought I didn't go anywhere last year. And then someone was like, didn't you go to Brazil for a month, kite surfing? I was like, oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> oh, and yeah. then we were like, but we were in Spain, kite surfing for a month as well. I was like, oh, yeah, two months all day. That sounds good. I, I guess I did that. But yeah, they're a nice place to work from remotely. And I've been going down to Dominican quite a bit. Places with good, reliable Wi-Fi, you know, I'm no stranger to turning up on the digital nomad list and figuring out like where is the best arbitrage opportunity currency wise. So for where does your, you know, your dollar bang for your book, as oh, your Americans would say. But that was the premise of him ended up in Argentina at the time because their currency had crashed. And the Brazilian rail was pretty weak against the dollar at the moment. So it was it was cheaper to be there than it was to be in California for that month. So the, a lot of the concepts he put into action in that book are still very relevant. And it might sound fanciful that I'm applying them, but I think anyone else can apply them as well. Sure. Oh, man, that's such an interesting, like, uh, <laughs> such a backwards. Usually people are like, where should we go on vacation? Well, my, on my bucket list, I've always wanted to see the Northern Lights. But you're like, oh, I've always wanted to go to a place where the currency is currently just tanking. Exactly. <laughs> and, and that was the whole thing, though. I mean, he was doing his tango lessons and got himself a penthouse oh, in Buenos it. Aires. Yeah, so I went to Buenos Aires. I'm like, that is a good strategy. I'm going there for a month. And I did. Like, whatever he he was in i was like i'm that's just a good idea i'm oh. going to do that as well so i think that that's the beauty you you forget sometimes in life that you can't find like-minded people like you and the beauty of books for me is that books become your mentors like i i grew up mm. in a place where i wouldn't have had a mentor of anyone to tell me how to do any of this stuff but books are like literally someone's most synopsized beautifully well thought through and edited professionally thoughts it's the exact opposite to a comment section on social media where no one puts two <laughs> words into anything i'm like the tools are there and i think books are your mentors if you're like i don't know anyone who does that and you're like well i bet you can oh, find them that's such a beautiful way to put it and what what a uh, such a valuable way to live life such a streamlined way to live things is to just go right to the source go right to the brain of the person 
when I brought it up before, you said that this book uh, changed your life. So I wanted to know how was this book, um, how influential was it? And was living all the all over the world something you did before and then your day job constrained you? Like, yeah, well, the, the timing is funny because it was 2008. I just left Colombia where I was living for a year. I kind of definitely blagged my way into a job in the mergers and acquisitions division of PricewaterhouseCoopers, which it sounds and was as exactly as unlikely as you might think it to be. You're like, yeah, it was funny. So I was kind of getting into that, but I, I was struggling with the Spanish language side of things and just a feeling that like, oh, I must, I could be good in another language. I was like, well, listen, like most of the incarcerated population in America is multilingual. Why, how oh. am I not multilingual? Interesting. <laughs> well, it, it's true when you think yeah, about it, kindly. Sure. Like, out of necessity, you can definitely learn a word for another word. And I remember sure. traveling in Peru one night, and I was out with an English guy having a few beers, and he nearly got people in, like, four different fights. He was totally crazy <laughs> and just using a vocabulary of words that didn't make full logical sense as he was trying to hit on girls in a place we definitely shouldn't have been. And one included the president's daughter. And her boyfriend was there. Oh like, what are the chances of any of this happening? But I just remember listening to him go, your Spanish is mad. Like you're not connecting any of the words whatsoever. But he knew the word for everything. His vocabulary was bonkers. And it turned out he'd been arrested for selling ecstasy and imprisoned uh, in Spain for nearly a year. And sure enough, that's where he learned all the Spanish. Imprisoned. Oh, wow. Out of necessity. What a now, life hack. Yeah. Well, yeah, not really one I want to go down. Like Duolingo <laughs> sounds way more appealing compared to that. But or so I was like, well, necessity is a good driver of this. So I went in, in Colombia and I, I did that job for quite a while. And I left in 2008 to move to London. And I decided, you know what? I think I could turn this finance job into a decent financial position. And I'll try and get a job as a trader and work in the financial markets, even though I'm a moron <laughs> and no good at maths. And that was when, that was 2008, the four-hour work week had just come out in 2007. And a friend of mine emailed me a PDF copy of it and just said, this guy is exactly like you, only he has money. You might <laughs> want to read it and figure out how he's doing it all. And I did. And pretty much every dot following on that could be traced back to the four-hour work week in, in some way, shape, or other. That's incredible. So it's something, it's a lifestyle that you are already going after. And then someone was like, well, I found a template. <laughs> yeah, it, it just legitimized the plan. And when, wow. like, you don't have to do this with $7, which was my <laughs> current strategy, would be just to turn up at the border, trying to get back into America with literally $1. And a friend of mine from America drove down to pick me up at San Diego. I would love to know. It sounds like you already, you were born with this tendency to not look before you leap. And so you probably skipped over the chapter. There's a whole chapter in the book where he talks about, like, it's going to be okay. You don't have to have a, <laughs> have the courage to leap your job and risk, you know. <laughs> to fund going to Spain. That was the first time in my life I ever had zero plan, quit the job, took a break for the summer, sold the car and went to Spain. Mm -hmm. So like I had made that jump where I went there and I couldn't cook or clean. And my mother was like, he's going to be back in like one week. I have no idea how he's going to stay alive. And I just microwaved hot dogs until they exploded. And then I ate them. <laughs> that was my system. So I, I'd made that leap already. So like anything after that, as the, the language, you know, you have a little bit more language knowledge, you have a little bit more financial knowledge, you have a little, w once you've been in a position where you're totally out of your comfort zone, I think it was a little bit easier to to abandon jobs later on. But the, again, that, that book kind of gave you a blueprint to do it. It was like, hey, 
you don't totally have to quit your job. You can design a job so you can disappear within a company. And that's exactly what I did. So that there was kind of two options. He's like, start your own business and be successful and work less. And I was like, well, I'm too stupid for that. What are your other options? <laughs> and he's like, get a job and disappear within a large company. I'm like, oh, I can definitely do that. So that's my next question is, how do you do this as you're lining all of these things up? Um, you're not risk uh, averse. What sort of a job was it? And what was your, so you were work, uh, working remotely years before any sort of pandemic. I wasn't meant to be, but somehow, yeah, I mean, the crux of it all was I, I got a job with the world's largest private education company. And initially, because I was interested in languages when I came oh, back okay. from Colombia and I turned up in London in 2008, which turned out not to be a great year to pursue a financial career oh. <laughs> uh, in London. But you moved to London to immerse yourself in the English language, correct? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I needed the proper version of it. They're like, that version you forced on my people is not accurate enough. I need to come to the source. <laughs> so then what was that job then? Well, I was in London and the financial jobs were falling by the wayside oh, pretty it. quickly. So they offered me a job. I think I bumped into a guy in a hostel in Columbia and he said, this company's interesting. They hire people like you. Um, you should write to them. And I did. And by some stretch of madness, the lady who interviewed me on the phone was from a small town in Peru called Trujillo, where I'd just been robbed. Uh, oh. And I, I was robbed in Spanish, so I was feeling quite confident in my own abilities that I understood everything. I'm like, well, never felt such a sense of achievement while losing <laughs> my possessions. Don't get that on Duolingo, uh, sadly. But it, for some reason, she just decided I, I could be a good fit, and she put me straight in with the CEO. Uh, of the company and they Whoa. had like on their busy periods they have nearly 50,000 employees I'm like I've no idea what I'm doing talking to this fella and I, I just kind of we swapped a few stories and he went okay we'll have a job for you I want you to meet the heads of all our different departments now and then uh, just talk to them and then tell me what you want to do and I was like okay Whoa. yeah it was very weird because I was interviewing with Google and they were like how many ping pong balls can you fit on a 747 and you're like how is that relevant but it was always for like google were famous for taking you down a peg or two so i was trying to bs my way into big jobs i think i took over as executive director which sounds funny basically the principal of a language school for the summer which was totally bonkers that i would be trusted in such a position of authority but i was I went to the bathroom one day and on the way back, the CEO just knocked on the window and he said, hey, he just started telling us about this business school in Dubai. And it just sounded like the case study from hell and give me some solutions to it. And it was me and a girl who was the Olympics US swim team captain that were in his office. And I was like, is this some kind of weird competitive job interview between the two of us? <laughs> so we both came up with solutions. And at the end of it, he just went, that's great. We own this business. Could you fly to Dubai tomorrow and fix it and do all the things you just told me you would do? fix this hypothetical Whoa. situation yeah and both has just looked at each other like this is real oh no we're <laughs> going to dubai tomorrow it's the middle of ramadan as well just to make your first <laughs> entry to dubai more interesting but that was it that was my entry point to that job and i, I think as time went by because they threw me into a couple of kind of semi-disaster type positions that i ended up circumventing the normal management structures a little bit and reporting to like ceos or presidents of the company who didn't really have a direct role for me, but needed me for a short period of time. So when I was on a project, they were looking for me like, hey, where's he doing stuff? But then when there was nothing really happening, nobody seemed to notice where I was. So at one stage, I just went to Bolivia for a month and didn't tell anybody. 
<laughs> and I remember doing a Skype call from somewhere down there. But I think the iPhone had just recently come out in like 2007 or 8 or 9 around then. So now you could be logged on on your iPhone to Skype, which people thought you were at your desk. Once that happened, I was like, oh, technology, you beauty. <laughs> but yeah, so I, I disappeared pretty effectively in that company. And, and that was how. And it was around... I think they moved me to the Middle East in 2008, nine. And then because I was reading the four hour work week, they gave me a job that I definitely wasn't qualified to do in full aspect, which was launching a new business product. So I actually hired the company that Tim Ferriss wrote about that he hired called Brickwork, if I remember the name correctly, oh, wow. which was the company he had outsourced a lot of his elements to. So I actually hired them to write a business plan. And then I kind of edited it after the fact. But at one stage, I had told two offices in the Middle East that I worked in each office, but I worked in neither of them. And lads in India were doing my job for me, which I was quite proud of. Now that I say it aloud, it doesn't sound like anyone's going to endorse me for doing that on LinkedIn, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. <laughs> But like in, in their defense, when when I was on, I was very on. Like at one stage, they moved me to China at like two days notice. And they're like, you Whoa. go to China when are you are coming back? And I, I didn't come back for a year. <laughs> you know, in hindsight, if I had looked at designing a career all over again or trying to pick a pant, I would just design a job from the get-go. Like the easiest interview to ever to get is the one you convince someone that they need. You're like, there's loads of people that take the boxes you're looking for or have eight of nine of the 10 requirements that your committee formed to decide they need for this very defined role that nobody wants you to do anything outside the scope of that role. But the four-hour work week was more of a, hey, just design your job. Like, listen, there's no one else that can really do this for you as effectively as I can. Mm -hmm. I'm pretty unique and I can get it done. And I'm very low maintenance and just send me to wherever and I don't care. I'll sleep in anything or go anywhere and I don't need a fancy hotel. And the whole reputation I got into that job was because I was just so poor that I couldn't afford any shirts when I moved to London because I just came from Colombia with no money and had been earning Colombian pesos. So this, I had an English friend who was a stock trader and he gave me a bunch of shirts and ties and I... I couldn't even tie the ties. I think I had my mother tie a bunch of them and I just never opened again. Took them on and off my head like a noose for job interviews. And that's, oh, yeah. and, but the uh, shirts, I shrank them in the wash when I dried them all. And that meant I had to roll up the sleeves on them to make it not look like they were too small. And when I went into meetings with this company, everyone started referring to me as a roll the sleeves up, get things done kind of guy. And I just thought that was the biggest irony in corporate life ever. Just <laughs> literally because I shrank my own shirts in the wash because I'm a moron, I was going to get promoted for being more efficient. <laughs> for shrinking shirts. What I also think is fascinating is that not only do you find these jobs where they send you all over the world, it's like wherever you are, at some point you get bored and then leave to travel to somewhere else in the world, even though you're already working an international job. That's, uh, yeah, that's that true. was kind of the core thing in his book. He's like, hey, want to have a man adventure in Buenos Aires? And I'm like, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> so then you end up working at this company. And I would also say uh, that since then you have uh, you've created sort of innovated uh, other jobs uh, well, you talk innovate about, like, is a very kind word there well, for just making up mad things. Well, but it's I think it's a, it's a blurry line. But the fact that you like you uh, later then wrote a book about how uh, stand up comics uh, are sort of experts in, in public speaking. Uh, so then you create this company where you uh, not only 
teach public speaking uh, from sort of a comedian's uh, expertise and background, but you also have another side hustle of punching up speeches for CEOs and uh, and politicians, and that's another job that was created. Like you, you didn't walk into a company. You're like, hey, I'm the I'm the punch up guy. <laughs> you know? What I mean? Yeah. No, I definitely made those up, but I made up a conference which was called Funny Biz Conference, which was like kind of like funny. TED Talks, and I made up, uh, I suppose it was an Irish comedy tour. There's a, there a few random things, but they all link back to Tim Ferriss's book, I suppose, where it was like that 80-20 principle, like could you apply sure. that to any given realm? Could you look at all the gatekeepers and go, how do I get around those? Could you look at a CEO and see, all right, that's a very inefficient process. They have a communications team. There's 15 people on it. They're all working to imagine what this man or woman would like to say in a way they'd like to be say it that might be received well by strangers. And they're putting the words in their mouth and expecting the busy CEO to memorize them like the night before and that it's going to go well. And they all have to justify their salaries. So they got to be doing something. And I was like, this is highly inefficient. I wonder if the leader would like to cut all these people out without making it known. And we could just work with them one on one behind the scenes and give them access to a much better team. So I think that one, it just relied on me getting out there and traveling to these conferences and just like, I'll never forget working on one where the guy was, I, I think I could probably say it publicly. He's he's a nice fellow and he told me no problem at all, but he was the CEO of GoDaddy, which is obviously a very- Oh, wow. Thing. Yeah. And he's, he's a really nice fellow and his story was amazing. I was hosting the event and he was speaking at it and he had a whole communications team with him and they were really nice. But I just remember nobody's ever really just got up to these people and said it to it like that before. I'm like, hey, I don't think they like this part. And here's a bit of it, something that I think might work a little bit better, work away. And then if they're interested, it's like, hey, by the way, we, we could help do this on a on a larger scale. And then because I wrote the book, I guess those people were coming to me. I guess the first step of the process was very similar to the four-hour work week. It was putting a synopsized version of your ideas in their in their shortest form out there into the world and see if anyone likes them. And then that book itself becomes a bit of a calling card for other avenues that might open up to you. And I think you would have seen that with Tim Ferriss, where before you know it, he used the four-hour work week and the four-hour body and the four-hour chef, and everything just spawns a whole series of ideas that are loosely linked back to the 80-20 principle, living a slightly more adventurous, a little bit different life and shortcutting learning processes across a whole realm of stuff. So I think that was what I took away from from everything I read in his book. Like, can you shortcut learning or do it in a better way in certain areas, but by learning for the world's masters of it? And that's what led me down the rabbit hole of, of stand-up comedy to cure a fear of public speaking, or at least try and get over it, was because it seemed so obvious reading his book. Like, man, if I had to get over a fear of public speaking, who would I turn to? And I'm like, oh, comedians, they're the true masters of this by a mile. Like, that's that's where Tim Ferriss would turn. That's fascinating to see then that you're living a life of that principle from uh, learning a language by immersing yourself in, in a country or uh, getting better at public speaking by performing stand-up comedy. How can I hang out with people, other people who are essentially mentors, and how can I do this the most possible rather than like joining Toastmasters and you know speaking five minutes a week or whatever? 
Yeah, and, um, and Toastmasters is like a happiness festival. No Irish person would feel very comfortable in that <laughs> environment where they're like, you were so amazing. It's hard to score you between eight and 10 on your level of amazingness. And you're like, well, you get out there into the realm of real people. I mean, that's the problem. It's a good organization if you have a real fear, like, you know, that that will help you at a starting point. But as re- regards mastery of something, I'd be slightly more uh, skeptical about it because I guess the Tim Ferriss method is like throw yourself in at the deep end. Like if you're going to improve yourself swimming a few couple of lessons in the pool, but before you know it, you're open ocean. You don't stay too long in the pool. A quote that I loved with him about uh, if something is important to you and you want to do it eventually, just do it right now and correct course along the way. And I I just love that phrasing. It's so much better. Like I remember a comic years and years ago um, after a, a couple of bad sets, he said, man, I just, I need to get a laptop so I can start writing jokes. And I was like, uh, <laughs> yeah, just write the joke. I think you could just do it. <laughs> yeah. But the idea, yeah. of just going, of just the, the idea is just jump, jump into it. Yeah. Jump and into I, it. Yeah. And I, I definitely took that away from, from Tim Ferriss's book, but the, the nice thing, his ones, he didn't really just toss out ideas at you. He was like, well, and here's how to do it. I outsourced things to a company. What company was that? It was called Breakwork. Here's their contact. And you're like, Ooh, I like that. And if you're going to write a book, get a good book designer. Book covers are very important. I said, well, who did you use? So I hired his book designer and then get a good editor here. And then I went down a rabbit hole and I'm like, well, who edited some of his books? Or, you know, he's he's very influenced by Ryan Holiday and some of the friends of marketing. I like those books as well. Who, who was the editor? So I actually hired the editor wow. to those. And then I was like, well, I can't really write a book because I'm rubbish at writing, but I'm okay <laughs> at talking. Can I dictate this thing? And then I was like, wait, how am I going to validate the idea? He told me to find a small group of people. And Tim Ferriss was very influenced by Derek Sivers in that find your, you know, find your tribe, find your initial 100 to 200. Or I can't remember the metric on it. It Maybe a thousand Mm. true fans or something was the article that Derek Sivers was the founder of CD Baby. So I was like, well, how do I pull, pull this together? How do I find those initial people? And so I made a video audio course and there was a platform called Udemy that had just launched and it was looking for new courses at the time. So I was lucky. I had a friend who worked there. I just so happened to bump into him. He's like, hey, you should make a course and, and see if anyone's interested in the ideas you're putting out around public speaking. And that allowed me to sell the ideas to complete strangers without publicizing that I was trying to do this whole process to any of my friends from Ireland or my family, because they would have been, you're nuts. What a waste of time. You cannot write. You barely even passed English tests at school. This is a terrible idea for you. And, you know, they poke fun of you a little bit for doing it. Is that in general how Irish families communicate with each other? Uh, Yeah, that's kind of the whole country. They're like, uh, (laughs) that's rubbish. Why would you do that? You know, America's the total opposite. If I was like, I'm going to quit my job and sell inflatable penguins on the internet, they're like, oh my God, I'd love to see that journey for you. Oh yeah, America though it's it's empty on the other side though. They where it's like yes, go just like feed your delusion. <laughs> yeah, they're like I will not help you, but I will smile at you and wave as you <laughs> drive off that cliff. <laughs> the Tim Ferriss one that that was the ultimate rabbit hole I found where I just made this course and then I kept I was able to iterate that course in real time and strangers would review it out of five stars. So it started off around like three and a half. And then I'd make changes and I could see where people dropping off. Wow. And it started getting up to like 4.5, 4.8. And then you're like, all right, I'm able to explain the ideas I have conceptually in a way I think, oh, Mr. Tim Ferriss would be proud of unbreaking something down using the 80-20 principle and replicating it for masters and being able to, to leave enough footprints for somebody else to follow it and replicate what I'm talking about. And then I once that course was doing pretty good, 
I transcribed a whole lot of it and then I filled in the story around it. And from the money I made from selling it to strangers, I was able to hire good editors from writers that I really liked. And I think it was it was either a bit of imperative advice or somebody else where he's like, if you're looking for an editor, just go to the back of any book you like and they're going to be the first person wow. thanked. And so that's what I did. And I ended up with a guy called Nils Parker, who was the editor for most of Ryan Holiday's books, if not all of them, and some other really, really good books. And I just liked to style a tone the idea. And he said, oh, I like it. And you just never know the doors that ends up opening up because when Stanford Graduate Business School created a program called Humor Serious Business, which to any Irish person does not sound like a real graduate degree that you might actually <laughs> be able to pursue, but good on America. And the land of dreams will charge you $100,000 probably to have a go at that one. <laughs> right. But they started that amazing course. And then it turned out they reached out to this guy, Neil's partner, who'd, who'd been the editor. Uh, do you have any recommendations for people that are active around comedy that might be able to explain some of this? And he recommended me. And like, yeah, three years in a row, I ended up being their guest faculty alongside wow. people like Seth Myers at Stanford Graduate Business School. And the whole thing's insane. And any you, you can draw a line right back from that to the principles in the, in the four-hour work week. Last question, and this can be like a discontinued or a continued to next time, but just a number of all those countries, because I, man, you have some crazy stories of all the countries you've been to, 80 countries, how many countries have you almost died in? Oh, I've definitely nearly died in Honduras, South Africa, Colombia, China, Greece, Spain. Uh, recently in America, definitely eight or nine. Nicaragua, <laughs> Nicaragua. Yeah, there's a, there's been a few hairy ones where I'm like, well, this isn't a good idea. So I, <laughs> so then if we could take the last couple of minutes, I'm going to spin the roulette wheel. Um, could you tell me your Greece story? Greece, I went cliff diving on cliff jumping, I should say, on Friday the 13th on an island without any medically trained doctors i broke my tibia and fibia and got a vet who thankfully didn't put me down that oh. is the shortest version of that story oh my god so what did you did you break on impact or was there something under the water i don't know yeah it's a bit of a blur like i kind of did the jump and i thought i was okay and i got out and i jumped from one small rock to another like over a little crevice and my whole leg just collapsed and oh. so i think i think i was on adrenaline and didn't notice that i'd done something and then i think the impact because i literally just like you'd hop from one rock to another i just did that now i'd just done it was pretty sizable probably 40 meters high maybe maybe 50 oh my word yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I'd been desensitized to how high things were because I'd just come from a summer in Cyprus and I got friendly with these guys who ran a bungee jumping company. And oh. sometimes we'd raise the crane up and I'd be their kind of guinea pig for entertainment and I'd see how high could you jump from without the bungee cord attached to you and watch the people's reaction who were lined up to go next as the bungee cord never appeared and you just lightly fell off a crane into the water. That became my kind of side hustle of enjoyment where I just watched their face and they're like, oh man, did you did you forget to tie someone again? Oh, don't worry about it. We, we won't mess up with you, buddy. Come on in here. You're next. And if you want to make an extreme sport more extreme, that's that's definitely the way to do it. So I'd been de desensitized to how high I was jumping off, but yeah, it was... That was rather painful. I'll tell you that for free. So it wasn't near dead, uh, but it was it was very painful and uh, uh, was not enjoyed. I suppose it's near dead. Like someone actually 
a year and a half later, I went back and did the same jump again because I'm a moron and I just wanted to get it in my system that I must have messed something up. And then that night I was having a celebratory beer and I told this guy I went down jumping off these cliffs and he's like, oh, I heard about an Irish guy who went there one time and messed himself up. And I was like, yeah, that was me. <laughs> uh, it was pretty sad to bring it full circle, but some guy had done the same jump and broke uh, broke his ribs and they had to airlift him by oh. So yeah, I wish I'd been told that in advance. They didn't get, quite give me the near debt list of people who'd messed up this jump over the years. They had to airlift the guy to another vet. Yeah, to another vet. <laughs> They're like, this vet does not specialize in drunken Irish people bouncing <laughs> off cliffs. We we need an expert. Yeah, the vet is still there, funny enough. The name is Dr. Yanni, and he's oh, definitely another doctor. <laughs> <laughs>